share a little bit about an irritating project that I have right now. Get this off my chest. Uh, this became a snowball project, if you know what that refers to. Uh, it started on a very optimistic Saturday when I thought, um, our sliding glass door just doesn't work very well, so I'll just take a few minutes to fix it, you know. And so I attempted to take it off the track. I quickly realized I didn't have the manpower required, so I involved Micah to lift and try, and we couldn't do it together. So I called my father-in-law, and he pointed me to a, kind of a portion of the door where you unscrew the little thing to drop it down and this whole bit. Of course, I didn't possess the tool necessary to reach the screw at the time, so I called Kevin Moore, who was a few houses down from me, and he supplied the tool that I didn't have, and we together got the heavy door off the frame and saw the problem. I needed new, new rollers, and those parts I, of course, didn't have. So I went to the store, and they didn't have the parts that I needed. And so I purchased the closest thing that was on the shelf because, hey, what's a quarter of an inch with a master-skilled <laughs> carpenter like myself to be able to make up for that? And so we took the door off and put the parts in, uh, only to realize that the quarter of an inch seemed to matter considerably more than I had initially estimated. So I went to a different store, and they still didn't have the parts that I needed, but they had a part that was somewhat like it. The wheels were the same size instead of smaller, and so I bought those wheels. And the, the employee said, well, all you have to do is just file it down a little bit, pop the thing off, put the new wheels on, and so I didn't have a file, so I bought a file, went home and filed the thing off, and sure enough, it didn't pop off. I'm not sure exactly how that was supposed to work. So that didn't work, so I called a glass shop and found out that my door was the old version and most places didn't have the parts that would match up with the door, and on it goes. This is the snowball project of not having what I needed. I didn't have the manpower, the tools, the parts, or the expertise at various points in the process to get this accomplished. Have you ever had a project like that? Where it just starts, it seems so simple, and before you know it, you're $300 in, and you don't know which way is up. Um, maybe, you, maybe it's getting to the end of a project and realizing that you were, you were missing a piece all along, right? Like getting to the end of a puzzle and finding those two gaps and scouring the house. Have you ever felt like that in your walk with Jesus? Like there was a missing piece that didn't make it into the, the box that you received. Maybe you, you start off thrilled following Jesus, and after some time, though, you start looking at the contents of the box and wonder if you got what everyone else got. You go back to the instructions, and you pray, and you pray, and you hold up the pieces, and you're not quite sure how they fit together. How does this suffering work in with a life of faith? Maybe you feel like you don't have the right tools. I'm praying just like everyone else, but I don't seem to get an answer. Maybe the instructions seem confusing. Is the arrow pointing this way or is it that way? Or where is it really headed? What direction should I take? Well, when you're not sure if you've got everything you need or know everything you need to know, or are looking at things in the right way, you start getting insecure. 
And this insecurity causes us to recoil from a critical aspect of the life that follows Jesus, and that's that it's a life of faith. That faith is the assurance of things hoped for, of parts to be delivered, of tools yet unseen. I want you to hear this reassuring word from God this morning. And it's the point of our text, that everything needed to know Jesus Christ and to share in his life is comprehensively provided by God's saving power. Everything needed to know Jesus Christ and to share in his life is comprehensively provided by God's saving power. We're going to be in the book of 2 Peter uh, for a season here. And so I'd, uh, I'd like to read that for us. Out of reverence for God's word, if you're physically able, let's stand and we're just going to read the first four verses of 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter 1, verses 1 through 4. Here's what God's Word says. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Why don't you go ahead and have a seat. And let's pray. Lord Jesus, we need your help to understand your word. And we are positioned to hear because of the gift and the, the resolved promise of, of the giving of the Holy Spirit. And we thank you for his authorship of this book. We thank you for his help and its interpretation and its, his, his conviction and its application. And we pray that his ministry would affect us as your gathered people this morning. We need you, we know that, so help us. I pray these things in Christ's name, amen. So a quick outline, we're going to do a quick introduction, verses 1 and 2. Uh, then we're going to see this comprehensive saving power, how it's both revealed and promised to us. So a quick introduction, this letter is likely written to the same group that First Peter was written to, which is the churches of Asia Minor. If you look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, it says, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. And many think that that's just referring back to 1 Peter. It's interesting, though, because Peter, the apostle to the Jews, right, ends up writing with a, a Hellenistic kind of flair or flavor, a Greek way of writing. And he doesn't include as much scripture in this letter as he does in 1 Peter but either way, verse 1 says that it's Peter uh, who wrote this. Um, he's the author. We see the situation that he's in when he's writing in chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. I'll read that. And it just helps us, again, understand where he's coming from. It says, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder 
since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Well, Peter, it seems, is facing the end of his life. Many think he's uh, being prepared uh, for his own martyrdom, that he's uh, in prison in Rome uh, during the time of Nero's persecutions. Uh, many say between 64 and 67 AD-ish, uh, Peter is writing from that kind of perspective. You'll notice in verse 1 it says that he's a servant and an apostle. I always appreciate those two things going together, that, that authority and humility are not things that are at odds, but are meant to be conjoined together. So he has the authority of an apostle, but the posture of a servant. He's careful, you'll notice in verse 1, when he says, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. And he explains how it is that everyone uh, has that equal standing by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. He levels the playing field. uh, And if people were going to to kind of exalt him in his position, he wants to explain, no, 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 we, we all got in here through the same door. We're all on equal standing. You could say equal need meeting equal provision means equal standing. And I think this is a burden for Peter. Even in 1 Peter, when he's talking about, he's talking to elders, he calls himself a fellow elder and, and does and says things that, that tries to just keep it clear that the righteousness of Christ is what the common denominator is amongst the people of God, not necessarily the significance or the seeming significance of the role that we play. It's interesting, too, in verse 2 that in the Greek, it essentially equates God and Jesus. You know, some people will say, well, it never explicitly says that Jesus is God in the New Testament. We could actually point to that verse and say, actually, it's saying they're one and the same. So God and Jesus. Now, the heartbeat of this letter is to, to demonstrate how God's salvation provides for the godliness of the church through pure doctrine. And he does that in a positive sense, but there's also these false teachers roaming around teaching false doctrine, which uh, inevitably leads to wrong living. And so he, it's his burden to keep the church from chasing this wrong teaching so that they would not uh, have wrong living. And so he's stirring up, as it says, as we read uh, later on in chapter 1, their memories or their their ideas and their understanding of right doctrine with the idea that right doctrine would lead to right practice and right living. So that's kind of just a a nutshell of 2 Peter, but I want to spend most of our time in verses 3 and 4 because they're really important verses for what this letter is communicating. In verse 3, we really get the punchline of what Peter is after, that God's saving power is comprehensive. He says that the divine power of Jesus, that's the his in verse 3, is referring back to verse 2. The divine power of Jesus provides everything we need to live a true and godly life. Everything we need to follow him, we have at our disposal. And the source of that massive, all-inclusive gift is the divine power of Jesus. It says his divine power has granted to us these things. And so God is promising 
If there is something that is needed for godly life, you will have it. You'll be supplied. There is no middleman to blame here. God is claiming that he is both the source and the supplier. He is, he is everything. So you go to Costco, you try to buy things there. They're out of things. They could say, our supplier didn't supply enough, right? They could point, they could point to someone else. I'm not saying they do that, but I'm saying they could, right? Because there's many links in that chain of supply. With God, there are no links in that chain, He is the one-stop shop. He is the monopoly for all things needed for a godly life in Him. And so if you are looking for resources for godly living, God is saying He is the sole supplier. And He's generous. Now think about the magnitude of that promise. How many different kinds of things do you need for life and godliness. I mean, if you, have, if you have tried to be godly in your life, you know that there are resources that you need, right? Why don't you tell me, what are some examples of things that you would need for, for life and godliness? The Holy Spirit. That we would need supernatural intervention, right? Because of what we know about how radically corrupted we are. What else? Patience. Yeah, where are you going to get patience? (laughs) The Holy Spirit, right? What else? Peace. And what else? Tolerance. Okay, so a a biblical sense of tolerance and peace. Yeah, where are you going to get peace in the middle of pandemic? Where's that going to come from, right? What else do you need for life and godliness? I mean, think about it. Even go back through your life. What have I needed? What kind of resources have I needed? What's that? Love. Love. Yeah. Wisdom, okay? Trust other Christians. Strength. Forgiveness. Joy. Discipline, self-control. A heart that seeks, right? That doesn't want to seek. I mean, you do this for 10 minutes and you'll kind of realize, like, I've needed a lot of things for life and godliness. And you think about what is yet to be done, in the process of sanctification, I will need a lot of things for life and godliness. And here God is saying, he will supply it. You will never go, man, I have this godly intention and this motivation and everything in me wants to be godly, but, you know, God just didn't give me all that I needed today. That will never happen. It's astounding. Think about two things that flow from this. One, notice that God's provision has a specific purpose, life and godliness, right? God doesn't promise to provide anything that we feel we need. His divine power hasn't granted to us all things pertaining to ease and self-esteem. He's not promised those things. There's a target, there's a goal for this provision, which is life and godliness. We need to keep that in mind. Because the second thing that flows from this is what we think we need may not always be what we actually need, right? Sometimes we accuse God of not supplying what is needed because we have misread what we actually need. Many times, and I have done this, we ignore what he has provided 
because we don't recognize it for what it is. We can get frustrated that God doesn't answer us and we leave our Bibles unread. We can want to be near to God and near His presence, but we don't resolve to spend time with His body. And I have been that person, and I have spoken with many people who are frustrated with how unclear God is being about something. And at the same time in our lives, there are things that we clearly know need to change and need to be different that He said to us that we ignore. Simultaneously, So most times our problem is not a lack of understanding, but a lack of willingness. As Paul says, hold to what you have attained. If we just acted on what we already knew, we'd have plenty to do. And just in case you were worried about my sliding glass door, I know you were. It turns out that little part I installed in both those doors, the repair guy came by who knows a lot more than I do and said, oh yeah, you have what you need already. All you just got to do these little two things, and it's sliding like a champ right now. It's unbelievable. It's a spiritual experience. But the point is, I actually already had what I needed. I just didn't know it. I was already supplied. What are you believing that you are lacking in regards to life and godliness? What are you believing that you are lacking in regards to life and godliness? How would you fill in the blank of the sentence? If I only had blank... I could live a godly life. If I only knew blank, I could follow Jesus. If we really start thinking about what is it that we really lack, it'll help us see how how amply God has provided. Well, I need God's help. I need His presence. Well, as a follower of Jesus, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. You are a temple. You are indwelt by him. Well, I need to understand truth in some way. Well, we we have the full word of God that says that it's fully capable of equipping the saints in in full measure. Well, Ben, I need power. I don't feel like I have power. No, you you have the risen Christ who's defeated sin. You're equipped to do battle, even if it's from a position of weakness, by his strength. Well, I need assurances. I just don't have assurance. Well, we have every assurance that God will see this through because of Jesus. And if I really weigh my assurances, it always tips in my favor. We have what we need. Praise God. So God's gift of salvation is comprehensive. It's all-inclusive. What a promise to claim in a moment of struggle when you feel like you lack In a pandemic, we were looking at several weeks with kids at the house during rain. I have all I need for life and godliness. On this frustrating search for a job, and I just am so discouraged, I want to quit. I have all I need for life and godliness. In this difficult marriage situation, it doesn't seem hopeful at all. And I'm tempted to be short on patience or on grace. I still have all I need 
for life and godliness. In singleness that I struggle in, in the lack of, re- of relating to other people, I still have all I need for life and godliness. Do you see how, th- how life-giving this could be when we feel so short-handed? There are extraordinary circumstances like the ones we're in now, it's true, but his provision is extraordinary as well. So God's comprehensive gift is saving power. But we see, secondly, his saving power revealed. So the second half of verse 3, it says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. How does God get this comprehensive gift to us? How does he deliver it? Well, it says, through the knowledge of him who called us. So he gives this gift through knowledge, knowledge of himself. Well, you think, well, what's truly needed for life and godliness? It makes sense that we would need a God, an understanding of God, in order to to know how to mimic him and know how to imitate him. It makes sense if we're going to be partakers of a divine nature that we would know who that is. And God supplies his people by giving the knowledge of himself. God calls people to himself, and in so doing, he is forever supplying resources for godliness. Because you notice, when people get a glimpse of Jesus in the Bible, and in people in your neighborhood that you know, and people in our church, when you see Jesus for who he is, you change, right? You do, you change when you see who Jesus is. Because God is infinitely desirable and interesting and glorious and beautiful, and we are constantly investigating, discovering things about his worth. And when we see him for who he is, we want to worship him. We want to obey him. We want to follow him, right? I mean, if you can think back in your life when you really had clarity about the person of Jesus, obedience probably wasn't this thing you like wrestled out of yourself, right? Because there's something about seeing him and knowing him, this God-given understanding of himself that propels obedience in a different kind of way. I mean, you probably don't find it difficult to follow him in those moments. It reminds me of 1 John 3, 2, when it says, We know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Why? Because we shall see him as he is. When we see him in his glory and in his beauty, there's, there's, it'd be insane to not follow him. Right? It'd be idiotic to not do that. Like, He's so wonderful and loving and glorious and majestic and just and right and true and all those things. Of course you'd follow him. And so it's, it makes sense that if God wants to give us resources for life and godliness, that he would start by giving us knowledge of himself. Because that would propel us towards him. So God's saving power is revealed He delivers what's needed for a life of godliness through this knowledge. And when he does that, we are forever resourced to live a godly life. Because that knowledge, as you know, continues. And this is really what verse 4 gets on uh, with God's power promised. It says, Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. 
You notice this is one big sentence, three and four. It's just, I love that they just throw grammar aside. I got a lot to say. The Holy Spirit inspires it. Uh, but then it goes on to this, this promise idea that God's saving power is promised so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. Now, verse 4 starts off with, by which, and you have to know, is what is the which referring to? By what? There's two options. Is it referring to God's power, which was from the beginning, divine power, verse 3, or is it referring to this knowledge that God gives to us? You can make an argument for either. I think it's the latter. I think he's saying, by this revelation or by this knowledge that God gives us, he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. It kind of makes sense that part of God's revelation is his word, right? It's how he reveals himself. And so Peter is continuing the train of thought. When God gives us this knowledge that gives us what we need for life and godliness, he also, along with that, gives us these promises, and these promises do something in us. Because you'll notice when, when God gives us knowledge about himself, if you, if you think about scripture, at the same time, he's like making covenants and promises all the time. So part of his revelation to us is his commitment to his people. His presence and his promises are often together. So think about it. When God is revealed in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve are present, right? And promises are given. The seed and the crush, crushing the serpent's head. When God introduces himself to Abram, promises are made, right, and given. When God reveals what he's like at Mount Sinai, it's with Moses and the Israelites, the law is given. When God reveals himself in a pillar of fire and cloud, he's leading the Israelites through the wilderness, and he's teaching them and promising them things all along the way. When God reveals himself in the person of Jesus, the apostles follow him, and it's in that context that God makes several promises to us out of that. When God reveals himself at Pentecost after Jesus has risen, people of all these nations take notice of what's going on, and the apostles preach that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to give the Holy Spirit, and that one day he'd return. So when God shows up, when he manifests himself to his people, promises are tacked on too. Does that make sense? So if God is going to reveal what he's like, he's going to show us who he is and what he's up to, at the same time, Peter says, built into that package of knowledge are these precious, these invaluable and very great, it's mega great, it's a word he made up to say great, great, great promises. At the same time, when God gives us this knowledge, he gives us these promises, these commitments to us. And when those promises are given to us, they do two things. They help us to become partakers of the divine nature, and they ensure that we escape from corruption. Does that make sense? They do two things. They help us to partake of the divine nature, and they, help, they keep us from corruption or from the world of sinful desire. Now, before we'll get to those in a second, but let's look at one clear example of how a promise from God can have this effect of resourcing us for life and godliness. The only other time this word promise is used in the New Testament is in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. 
So, we'll, I'm gonna, so go there. Let's, let's see how this actually plays itself out. How do one of these promises actually give us resources for life and godliness? Starting in verse 8, 2 Peter 3, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, that word we said, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. What's the promise? The promise is that the Lord will return. The day of the Lord. That's the promise that 2 Peter 3 is referring to. Okay? Now, the false teachers of his day are calling this into question. Look at chapter 3, verse 1, the second half of verse 1. Peter says again, In both of them I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Pointing back, hey, this was a promise that was made before. Verse 3, Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, and many were saying in that day, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. So Peter is saying, here's the promise. The Lord's going to come back one day. There are some, these false teachers who are in our midst, who are saying, we've heard this promise a long time. We've waited a long time and nothing's happening, right? We've heard this over and over and over again. And that, that lack of utilizing the resource of God's promise is creating immorality and disobedience and all kinds of things in that group of false teachers. But look what that promise is intended to do in verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, this is chapter 3, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? What is he saying? He's saying that the promise, the eventual promise that the Lord Jesus will return one day is meant to have a purifying effect on the church of God. That if the church grasped that one day Jesus will crash through the clouds, everyone will know and everyone will bow. If the church knew that, believed that, meditated on that, trusted that, they would live differently. They would live godly lives. So this is an example of how these promises, these precious and very great promises, actually bring about the transformation of God's people because we trust in His Word. Are there certain promises that God has given you that you are especially familiar with? I mean, there's tons of promises in God's Word, we know that. But there are, one, are there ones that are sweet to you? You know, like when it all hits the fan, that's the one you go to? You know what I mean? I bet many of you have those because you've learned that those promises aren't just things to kind of laminate and put on your fridge. And those are things to like base your life on. 
And Peter is saying the more that that God's people do that, the more that we trust his word ahead of his timing of how he's going to act, that's actually what transforms and makes us more like him. Now, let's briefly look at these phrases that he says. That's what these promises do. You'll notice there's a so that in verse 4 that's really important. It says, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Why would he do that? So that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world. Briefly, what is meant by that? It sounds really new agey, doesn't it? Like if someone walked up to you and said, hey, do you want to be a partaker of the divine nature? You'd be like, what are you on? You know what I mean? Like, but this is what Peter is saying. This is, this is words from the Bible, right? It, it sounds new agey, and it even sounded new agey in Peter's day. And he intentionally does this. Because they have this idea that you can kind of be absorbed by divinity and people can kind of take on the kind of the Greek gods kind of idea and become divine in, in a certain sense. And so he's going to use their language and, and redirect it, obviously, because we don't believe that. Even words like excellence in verse 3, is a, that's totally a Roman thing. It, would have, it means like the summary of all virtues. It means it's something that Romans would have, were striving for, but had a very different idea about what excellence meant, right? It's not according to the character of God. It was very different than that. So Peter is going to course correct the culture around him to think differently about what it means to become a, a partaker of the divine nature, you know, as, as the culture around him had this idea of taking on divine nature, it also meant that as they considered the physical world, that they, they thought that that's where corruption came from. That corruption was out there, and it invaded us and got in, got in here. But notice what Peter's going to do when he says, when we become partakers of the divine nature, he's not saying, you become little gods, and you walk around as divine beings. He's saying that in God's generosity, he's actually willing to transform you in a way that you increasingly reflect his image. You actually look and talk and sound like Jesus. But you notice what he says then, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. Peter says, no, 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 Gnostic, like semi, kind of proto-early Gnostic kind of thinking Romans, that the problem is not out there getting in. The problem is in and it gets out. The problem is sinful desire. And sinful desire, without becoming a partaker of the divine nature, shows up in corruption. And that's actually what corrupts the world. It's the inside out, not the outside in. So Peter's going to shift things. He's going to change them. He's going to say, no, no, no. I'll use your words and I'll explain how this works from God's perspective. And notice these things are happening, partaking of the divine nature and escaping from the corruption of the world by our utilization of God's promises. Because it says, so that through them, referring back to those promises. That's, a, that's an amazing connection. We can take on Christ's qualities and actually be escape from and be rescued from corruption because of our response to the promises of God. 
So this is God's saving power promised to us through his word. That we can participate in the sanctifying life of Jesus. You think of being attached to the vine and being in Christ and all, the, all this language that, that shows that there's a connection between us and him. It doesn't mean we become him, but it does mean there's this ongoing uh, infusion of grace and help and supply from him that remakes us. All by his divine power. All given to us in this comprehensive way in the beginning. So, let's review Everything we need to follow him in life and godliness, we have. God gives us this comprehensive, all-inclusive salvation. He delivers that to us through revelation. He gives us knowledge of what he's like. And we continue to feed on that knowledge. And that spurs on genuine obedience, genuine love, genuine following of Jesus. God continues to give this saving power through promise and our reliance on his promises. His promise and his presence aren't aren't ever apart. They're together. And so trusting in his promises invites his sanctifying presence to help and protect us from corruption. What a generous God we have, right? Let's think about some implications and we'll be done this morning. One, if you're a Christian, you have all you need. For godliness by Christ's divine power. Christians are supernaturally formed. And so if you are trying to forge your own path, if you are trying to to stockpile your own resources, it's not going to work. The resources you need for a life of godliness come from God's divine power in the way that he delivers them. Through revelation and promise. Where do you feel that you lack what's required? Do you view life and godliness as the goal of God's provision? These are just questions to chew on. Who supplies the power and resources for truly living Christian life? And if you think about, do I, do I really believe that God is my supplier of these things? What have you learned to rely on that in fact you don't need to follow him? How are you waiting for a delivery from God's supply house that's never going to come? Because it doesn't pertain to life and godliness. We have all we need for godliness. Take comfort and refuge in that this week. Second implication is to see. To see. If he gives us his saving power through revelation, then then we need to understand the worth of God's glory in Christ. This is how he gives us resource. When God opened your eyes to see the glory of Jesus, to correctly uh, profile him as the Son of God, you could say, he wasn't only welcoming you into Christian life, he was equipping you for Christian life. Your understanding of God and the gospel is the thing that will continue to resource you. And do you see how closed, uh, like, how closed a system this is? In order to know God, he needs to show you what he's like so you can be like him. To know God, you need God so you can be like God. Common theme, you need God, right? <laughs> and, and so he's necessary at every point. 
To know God, you need God so that you can be like God. And seeing occurs before any of these changes occur. And this means that if you, you're not a Christian and you, you don't understand the gospel, that, that you ought to be directed to trying to see. That you, that you should be reading the scriptures and looking for that God-given sight to truly understand and assess the worth and the value of Jesus Christ. That is your number one objective. Your number one objective is not to try, it's to see. You need sight. Because once you have sight, if God gives you that, it's this comprehensive box, it's this all-inclusive package. Last implication, to hear. Hear. God binds himself to his own word. His promises are invaluable and mega, mega great, as Peter says. They make us participants in the life of Christ. Maybe that just takes the, the, the need to, to memorize or understand or to meditate on or to understand the word of God to another level. Peter's going to go on and say how necessary effort is, his very next verse. For this reason, make every effort to. And he's going to explain this all-comprehensive salvation doesn't mean you just sit back and wait for God just to kind of feed you. It's an active thing. But we need to hear. So, to wrap up, Redemption Family, God's power is our supply and it is never-ending. As we continue to see and know the Lord Jesus and keep seeing and knowing the Lord... He will powerfully supply what is needed to follow him. As his promises become more precious to us, as they grow in greatness and become lifelines for us, we will be transformed into the likeness of Jesus. Everything we need, we have. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for its penetrating relevance to our lives. And we're so thankful that you continue to disclose what you're like and what you've done and what you've said. You don't go frustrated with your people that you've documented exactly what you want to communicate to us and we shake our heads and wonder why you're so silent. God, thank you for your patience with us. We pray that your saving power would, we'd be confident of its supply, we would continually see the glory of the Lord Jesus that we continue to hear and trust in the words that you've given to us. Make us like yourself through this all-inclusive salvation that you're doing in our midst. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.